Thank you, Sarah. It's great to be with you. Hello, everybody. Hey, hey. So I want to start by setting the stage a little bit. Uh, can I get a thumbs up from everyone making sure you can hear me okay? Just want to kind of, good, good, good. So uh, speaking of what ifs and experiments, Abhishek and I were, we talked so much uh, in preparation for this chat that we were just thinking, what if our talk could be more like these chats that we've been having and do away with some of the decorum and some of the stiffness that sometimes can happen when you're preparing a speech? We want to make this more like a conversation. And we sat in the park one day and just sat in the grass and talked for like two hours. And we were thinking, what if our presentation could be closer to something like that, more of a podcast and less of a TED talk? Um, so today's going to be tonight's going to be kind of informal, and hopefully, you will feel moments that you can interject, interrupt, ask questions, uh, ask for clarity, clarify us. You know, maybe get us to explain things a little bit better. So, um, I'm really grateful. I want to say that up front that I'm grateful for the opportunity and grateful to get to do this with Abhishek. We got to know each other better through this process and just to get two brown men to get to be vulnerable together and share stories, it was worth worth the effort from the very jump. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, Abhishek, anything you wanna add before we jump in? No. So we want to start off, um, I'm gonna share a definition at the, t at the beginning of our slideshow. Um, Abhishek, if you wanna pull that up about the traits of perfectionism and perfection culture and white supremacy culture. And this is a little wordy, so I am gonna read from the slides, but we'll make this available to you if you wanna take screenshots or just get the slides for your own kind of learning later on. To the traits of perfectionism and white supremacy culture, um, little appreciation expressed among people for the work that others are doing appreciation that is expressed is usually directed to those who get most of the credit anyway. So um, more common to point out either how the person or work is inadequate, basically telling people what's wrong, not expressing what is right. Um, even more common to talk about others, they talk about the uh, inadequacies of a person or their work without ever telling them, talking directly to them. Mistakes are seen as personal, i.e. they reflect badly on the person, making them as opposed to being seen for what they are, mistakes. Um, making a mistake is confused with being a mistake, doing wrong with being wrong. This kind of gets into shame and not guilt for doing a bad thing, but like being a bad thing, being a bad person. Little time, energy or money put into reflection or identifying lessons learned that can improve practice. In other words, little or no learning from mistakes, tendency to identify what's wrong, little ability to identify, name, and appreciate what's right. Often felt, in other words, often felt, I'm sorry, often internally felt. In other words, the perfectionist fails to, fails to appreciate her own good work, more often pointing out his or her flaws or failures, focusing on, sorry, I gotta get to the next slide here. Did we clip that? Maybe we didn't include it at all. Okay. I think maybe it's focusing on failures. Okay, maybe that was a mistype. Yeah. Um, and so we got that definition from dismantling racism 
a workbook for social change groups by Kenneth Jones and Tim Okun from a 2001 change work. So this is kind of the definition that you'll find online from the prevailing voices about white supremacy culture and the academic work they've done. So we want to make sure we cited that. Um, and we did want to shout out the four agreements. We're going to be reading excerpts from that uh, tonight, three um, specifically. And so that's a book that Abhi Sheikh will tell us about right now. Yeah. So, and uh, just a quick note about um, the traits of perfectionism. It comes from that Tima Okun article on white supremacy culture characteristics. And it really focuses on how white supremacy shows up in our institutions and organizations. And um, so the traits that Garrett just read through are kind of speaking to how perfectionism shows up with a group of people. However, Garrett and I, in our talk tonight, we're gonna make it more of an individual focus and be speaking about it, um, how it shows up in our lives a lot more personally. Um, and we're going to be drawing, as we talk about perfectionism, we're gonna be drawing on um, indigenous wisdom from this book, The Four Agreements. Uh, you'll, a lot of you may be familiar with it. It's by Don Miguel Ruiz. Um, and there's a second book that's comes that has a fifth agreement. Um, and I think it's called Fifth Agreement. Uh, Don Miguel Ruiz is um, a descendant of indigenous uh, people known as the Toltecs, which is in present day Mexico. And um, the wisdom in this book comes from that ancient um, indigenous group of people. And so when we talk about white supremacy culture, it can be really um, kind of helpful to go back to indigenous wisdom because sometimes white supremacy culture is so pervasive uh, globally that we need something to kind of sift it out from because it's like, how, like, isn't this just human culture? Mm -hmm. um, but when you compare it to indigenous cultures, you can kind of bring some nuance to it. And so Garrett and I were really excited uh, to find out that when we opened up this book, uh, Perfectionism, Ruiz begins with talking about perfectionism before he even goes into talking about the four agreements, which I'm gonna read the four agreements really quick so you know what they are. Uh, the first one is be impeccable with your word. The second one's don't take anything personally. The third one is don't make assumptions. And the fourth one is always do your best. So those are the four agreements. It's a really quick read, just a little booklet. But before even going into any of the agreements, Ruiz talks about perfectionism and how it shows up in just human nature. It's human nature for us to try to be perfect. And so we used um, an excerpt where like four paragraphs from a few pages of the book to kind of frame our conversation on perfectionism tonight. You so ready for that now? I'm ready, Garrett. So here's the first 
a paragraph that introduces how perfectionism shows up for us. And Ruiz use the, uses the word domestication, like we're domesticated as, um, as humans, like we're born into families. And then you could basically use the word as socialization as well. We're socialized to be a certain way. So I'm gonna read through this real quick. During the process of domestication or socialization, we form an image of what perfectionism is in order to try to be good enough. We create an image of how we should be in order to be accepted by everybody. We especially try to please the ones who love us like mom and dad, big brothers and sisters, the priests and the teacher. Trying to be good enough for them, we create an image of perfection, but this image is not real. We're never gonna be perfect from this point of view, never. And so I'm gonna share real quick about how, for me, uh, how that domestication of perfectionism showed up. And for me, it was within uh, Christianity and Western Christianity specifically, I'm sure a lot of you would be able to relate to how perfectionism shows up in the form of sin and that you can live a sin-free life. And so when you're free of sin, you're perfect. And that's kind of the point of being, um, of being a Christian is to be free of sin and to be perfect. And so that's how it began to show up for me. And it was even like, I got the double whammy cause I was a pastor's kid. And so I had to be extra perfect uh, cause you know, everyone was looking up to the pastor's family and shout out to the PKs. Yeah. You all know what's like any mistake I made would probably show up, you know, would be known by the church community. It would be, I mean, even in school, even in schools, my teachers knew that I was the pastor's kid. And so I was held to that, that standard. And so I internalized the sense of like, I have to be on my best behavior at all times. And also the way I was socialized was that best behavior. Like I think I adapted perfectionism, not so much in my external appearance or how I did work, although that plays into it as well, but it really played into how I view myself within relationships and interactions. And so I had to have these perfect, I had to be perfect in how I interacted with people and how I created my relationships and ultimately what that played up for me was that, or how that played out for me was that I had to be this nurturing, caring, really excellent, best behavior pastor's son to everyone I met. And it created a part of me that was so, became so afraid of making a mistake in how I related to other people and uh, whether I said the wrong thing or if I said something that was upsetting or made a joke that hurt someone's feelings. And so that's how I had, I was able to develop this friction in relationships, but also had this big shadow part of me that was so afraid of making a mistake and uh, messing up in that way. So I'm going to invite you all 
to take a few minutes before we go any further, because we don't want this to just be about Garrett and my stories. We want this to be about your stories as well. So take a few minutes to reflect on your own about how perfectionism shows showed up for you, how you were socialized or domesticated into perfectionism. And feel free to grab a notebook uh, to write it down or do a drawing. And um, we just wanted to be intentional to take some time to reflect on it. Especially the part like that Garrett mentioned when we read the traits that lack of perfection is often internally felt uh, in shame. So we make a mistake and the shame is this belief that I am, I'm bad, I'm not good enough, I don't deserve good things, I'm a piece of shit. And it's that internal kind of voice in our head saying, you have to be perfect because if not, you will experience those strong feelings of shame. And so perfectionism then becomes a, a tool for avoiding shame and avoiding dealing with our shame because the more perfect we be, we can be, the less we have to experience that uncomfortable uh, emotion of shame. You know, every time I, th I think about the word shame, I think about Brene Brown, because we did a series a couple of years ago, Tony and I about shame and uh, vulnerability. And so I, I want to acknowledge that we will talk about where her work kind of fits in here and we will like kind of differentiate that later on tonight. But um, yeah, is it okay if I share a little bit of my story now, Abhishek? Yeah, go for it. So I'm thinking second, about the second panel. Um, yeah, let's read that first and then um, we'll talk about it. Why don't right. you throw that up and I'll read it, thanks. Okay, so the second excerpt. We know that we are not what we believe we are supposed to be. And so we feel false, frustrated and dishonest. We try to hide ourselves and we pretend to be what we are not. The result is that we feel inauthentic and we wear social masks to keep others from noticing this. We're so afraid that somebody else will notice that we are not what we pretend to be. We judge others according to our image of perfection as well. And naturally they fall short of our expectations. So this is so much of my life. And like, as much as I could talk about my upbringing in Liberty, like the suburbs, really this is like my life today. <laughs> it's, it's, it's um, it shows up presently and from, you know, those neighborhoods where if you don't mow your lawn fast enough, people are on your ass or if, um, you know, you don't drive a nice enough car or if you're renting when everyone else owns, all kinds of things like that have shown up in just the physical locations of where I live. Not to mention the race implications of most spaces that I'm in, I'm the only person like me and with that comes tokenism and um, the idea that since I'm representing the whole race, I may be the only black person in a group of 100 or 200 or 300 people. 
I have to be the perfect black person because they are looking to me to like represent the race and to be um, respectable. You know, this gets into respectability politics. And I think I grew up finding norms in pushing down my voice, pushing down emotions to a point, um, especially the emotion of anger and especially the emotions of sadness. And I think as an adult now, I'm better about sharing what I'm truly feeling. We'll talk about maybe some of the work I've done to get there later on, but um, that shame piece, even from small things, um, like listening to rock music when I was younger, I felt shame in being like a black kid that was listening to what everything, listening to the same music that everyone else around me was listening to, because I felt like I shouldn't like that. But I did like that. I did like these things, these, these so-called white cultural things and um, carrying some measure of shame for having so many white friends and not having as many black friends and brown friends and feeling a real, so what's the word, like pushing down and, and suppressing of the black culture that I was raised in. Like if my friends wanted to listen to 90s R&B, I was usually trying to get away from that because like I, I wanted to like wear the mask of what everybody else was wearing to, to be like them. And so that type of self, I mean, you can only call it self-abuse. I mean, I'm basically, I was looking at traits of myself and saying, those are not good. And what you're left with is some damage and you're left with kind of a fractured version of yourself that you have to come back to later and try to heal and try to integrate. And that's kind of where this discussion kicked off for Abhishek and I. As a BIPOC man, where do I fit into the American dream now? Um, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's also a good time to bring in like the intersection of patriarchy. And I'm, you know, I saw Nick and uh, Maddie's comments on how perfectioning, perfectionism for them was patrolling emotions and responses. And, you know, as men, we have, as cis men, we have this expectation that's created that our responses are always perfect. And there's only certain emotions that we're okay to experience. And I have to, I have to say this, this idea of, cause it's such a strong like feeling of like, maybe this fear of dishonoring your ancestors, this idea that like, are they, are they proud of me and the choices I've made? And like, just this really significant weight that you can put on yourself. Um, and and I, maybe some of the choices are not even choices. I mean, Abhishek, you maybe didn't choose to uh, come to America when you did. And I didn't choose to be raised in the suburbs the way it was, but like we still carry some shame for like the cultures we've been assimilated into and the conditioning that we've um, been subjected to. And yeah, I just wanted to name that. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Tony, um, Tracy, Maya.
yeah, it is kind of a, a, a tearing being torn between kind of two realities. And I definitely, you wonder who you would be if different things had happened, you know? Um, so, yeah. Just the process of getting to talk through some of this with Abhishek and with all of you has been like healing for me. And it's begun a process that, um, as so many people are re-examining where they sit on kind of like a racial spectrum and how racism works in America, it's been good for me to re-examine how I came to be the man that I am and the way that I am. And so um, I, I appreciate it. Appreciate the support. Yeah. Is there space to share? Absolutely. I really related with you, Garrett. Um, I grew up, so I have two parents. Uh, my mom is white and my dad is black. And I have lived in about 14 different places over in and around Kansas City. And I've been to Kansas City School District, Center School District, and North Kansas City School District. So like experiencing culture shock from my foundation of growing up in predominantly black schools to moving to predominantly white schools and just the confusion with my proximity to blackness or whiteness like it's not necessarily apparent that I'm half black to everyone and it's created like a lot of identity confusion in me and I just think that like identity is a mirror, so it's how you see yourself, but it's also like how other people see you. So when they don't align, it can be confusing and just cause like a source of conflict, shame, guilt, etc. Over now. I really appreciate you sharing that, Maya. And I'm sure that you and I could just jam on the things that people have said to us and like you could call them microaggressions, but they're really just aggressions, you know, like. Um, oh, I don't even think of you as black or, you know, why do you talk that way? Or why do you listen to this or dress like this or watch this? And all these very narrow boxes that um, we're meant to fit in when we know that people contain multitudes and uh, people understand intersectionality quite a bit more than they used to. And, but those words didn't really exist when we were young, when I was young. And um I was just confused about what I was supposed to be and who I was supposed to be. And I wish that I could have just had benevolent confusion, but it was more of like um, shame-based kind of like, where do I fit in? And um, yeah, so thank you for relating to that. I really appreciate it. I see uh, in the comments that Tracy Hughes raised a hand. Hi, um, um, a quick question, or hopefully a quick, quick question. In, in the context of race and racism, is it possible for someone's expectation of being educated by a person of color, would that be a tenet of white supremacy? Hmm. Being like, a, like asking a, a brown person to 
like bring them up to speed on things you mean or like i'm confused asking to the point of demanding yeah like things that have happened recently you mean tracy like yes um i actually had a situation over the weekend uh, friday evening that some in brief someone made an assumption about a piece of work and went off on a complete i don't even i don't even understand what the heck was going on tangent about how that piece of work was divisive at least five people including myself tried to educate this person on no it is not divisive it's actually 120 years old and it has deep meaning to the black community and they kept claiming to understand that but still saw it as divisive even though they were being presented with information information and it finally got to the point where I was like, if this person had just done a Google search half a day ago, there wouldn't have been a need to, to jump all the way off into this opinion that was beyond ill-formed. And by the time, by the time they finally got to a point where they were able to say, yes, I was mistaken. Yes, this is a beautiful song yes, I understand the meaning that it has for the community, although she still kept saying that it was still divisive to have a national anthem and a Black national anthem. By the time they even got to that point, I had nothing else to give. I had nothing else to give. But one of the things that really irritated me was that even though I had already explained to them much earlier in the day that marginalized people and black people in in this particular instance have been trying to educate folks on how racism shows up in our lives for years. But whenever we do that, we get people who, who are saying, are you sure you, are you sure they meant it that way? Or, you know, some sort of gaslighting or turning it around and, and things like that. And, and experiencing that has an emotional cost to us. It is an emotional weight on us that we are frankly tired of bearing. And this person still demanded that I educate them anyway. Yeah. And, and looking back on it, she didn't really make that demand of any of the other people who were taking their own time to provide information. She only really made that of me, the only mm-hmm. black person who was who was trying to trying to set this person right. Yeah, and again, that's tokenism and asking you to speak for your whole race. And uh, also, there are people who are professionals that publish books and prepare, you know, works of literature and have classes and courses. So I never really, I don't take the time to answer those people's questions. Usually, I point them to someone else who, that's their work, you know. So in 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 short, I was just wondering if if that type of behavior is a manifestation of white supremacy. Yeah, and part of it, Tracy, when we talk about the white supremacy culture characteristics is that it's it's the water that we swim in and that mm-hmm. the culture, we, regardless of race, we have taken on these characteristics, right? So it's not just white people for whom this shows up, it shows up for all of us. And the way I'm seeing from what you described, the way it showed up is that 
you know, this person wanted you to educate, but at the same time was not truly willing to listen and, right. and uh, hear from your experience. And so we, we will be talking about this a little bit more about how this perfectionism connects with um, within the context of race um, and the work that that uh, we all have to do in different ways as people as BIPOC folks and white people um, to address how white supremacy culture characteristics show up for us individually. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Your picture is pretty badass too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Garrett, are you ready to move to the third excerpt? Sure, if you, um, yep, if you're ready for that. Right. Um, I'm, not, I'm not even trying to share anymore. If you, yeah, thanks. There, so we dishonor ourselves just to please other people. Humans punish themselves endlessly for not being what they believe they should be. The way we judge ourselves is the first is the worst judge that ever existed, as in we are our, our harshest critics. If we make a mistake in front of other people, we try to deny the mistake and cover it up. But as soon as we're alone, the inner judge becomes so strong, the guilt is so strong, or the shame, and we feel so stupid, or so bad, or so unworthy. So this is where uh, Garrett mentioned earlier about the self-abuse that yeah. uh, we internalize because of perfectionism. So the self-abuse, the self-judgment, and the self-rejection. So if I were to add this, my, my own story with perfectionism and juxtapose it, juxtapose it with how race, with race, it'd be here I am, uh, a brown cis man socialized to be uh, perfect in, in my relationships and how I nurture and as a Christian to be a servant to the world. Uh, but I live in a world where power is inherently and insidiously held by white people. And I've seen this uh, in all the countries I've lived in. I've seen it in the church. I see it in all my institutions or uh, communities I've been part of. And so I become, being in the US, I came to the US when I was 18 years old for college and my perfectionism and my, abil my ability to have these perfect relationships and always be caring and nurturing puts me in this perfect situation to uphold the status quo, right? right. So I've, I haven't been socialized to believe because I'm not white to believe that the world is there for me to have power over and to conquer. But as a person of color who comes from a colonized country, I'm socialized to see the world as I just take whatever comes and I do my best to be perf perfect in those interactions. Um, but not uh, 
stand up to power, not challenge power and not cede, but rather to cede to power. Um, so I learned that challenging power is one of those mistakes. Um, so the mistakes that I avoided, so I avoid so strongly challenging power is a mistake with consequences that could be too dangerous to make for it to be worth it to um, address. And, and I so, think that go ahead. that's too, I was just gonna say that that is too perfect of a point for me not to relate that to really all brown people in America right now. I mean, um, a black man can't really stand up to power without at least the fear or the risk of consequences. And this is why you see some people with reluctance to protest and to, to riot or to um, push back against law enforcement and things like that, because we've seen deathly consequences. And mm -hmm. so th this is kind of where you and I, when we were talking in the park, we realized that like the, the Venn diagram of a first generation Indian immigrant and a present day black man in America, actually there's a lot of overlap because the socialization equates to people paralyzed by fear and people feeling like, you no, know, it's, it's about our lives, whether we uh, speak truth to power and how we speak truth to power and the, the way that we do anti-racism work. So, yeah. um, and it definitely is easier just to not, and just to, just to play the game, wear the mask and stay quiet so that you can live. And mm -hmm. it's something I didn't understand when I was younger, but now I understand how someone can get to be um, 30, 40, 50, and kind of take as little, as few risk as possible because they don't want to, it's not just rocking a boat and making some people mad. It could be costing you your job, your livelihood, your life, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So here is this conundrum then that I'm faced with is there's a self rejection for me to not see myself as fully, fully human and fully uh, having full access to taking power or standing in my power so that there's dehumanize, the dehumanizing uh, result of racism there. That's a self-rejection. But also, if I try, when I see that part of my work as a person of color is to change my, how I've been socialized, change my worldview of myself uh, or my view of myself and the world and say, I need to stand in my power and build my own power. Then there's also this fear of making mistakes of what that would look like uh, because it's not easy and it's messy. Um, and so that would be the work that I'm involved, that I'm doing for myself right now is to deconstruct how I was socialized to see myself as not, not ha having the right to power, but to building that within myself and um, finding ways to just live into it, even though it'll be messy. And so, you know, addressing perfectionism and my shame for if I make a mistake as I do this is really important. 
I think that leads into the idea of, and the practice of authenticity, right, Abhishek? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. we want to invest some time tonight in talking about the antidotes and the fixes, so to speak. And so while we could talk for a long time about the waters we swim in of white supremacy and perfection, we wanted to try to take some time to talk about, well, what do you do about it? How do you rebel against this uh, in everyday life? And this is kind of where we want to talk about the practice of authenticity and vulnerability. And like I referred to before, Tony and I did a series um, kind of featuring the work of Brene Brown. I think we talked about the gifts of imperfection and Darren Greatly and some of her works. Um, Looking back, I have somewhat of a problem with some of that literature now because I don't know that she addressed race like at all at that time. And I'm guessing that, you know, if she were to make another book right now, it probably has more to do with how vulnerability and bravery looks different for different people. (laughs) And and, um, definitely for like uh, an out gay man, um, like my friend that I was facilitating with and for a black man like me, um, vulnerability looked different as we were talking about it. But nowadays, I think you have to address that. Where does a black man go to be angry? Where does a, a brown person go to be sad? Where are the safe spaces you can go and um, feel like your emotions won't be judged? And these are, these are the questions I think you have to ask if you want to practice vulnerability and emotional honesty. And really, I mean, those are the tenets of Brene Brown's work, but I think when you bring race into it and even all kinds of intersectional identities into it, the LGBTQ, uh, AI plus people, you know, all, all of them, I think you have to look at what vulnerability looks like for people who are more at risk of rejection and finding people in spaces where emotions are not judged, not judging your emotions yourself, um, Abhishek, you shared something in one of our chats that I wrote down. I guess it's a quote, and we can call it a quote. Um, you said, how we manage our external image mirrors how we manage our internal selves. I think you said something like that. So basically, how we how we change ourselves and wear social masks, and maybe we don't cry when we want to cry. Maybe we don't get angry when we want to be angry. That also reflects on what happens inside of our bodies and inside of our kind of like our emotional selves. And to me, that gets into um, Resmo's work, which I don't know if we cited that tonight, but um, I don't know how many of you have read My Grandmother's Hands by um, Resma, what's the last name? Yeah, Minikin. But uh, he talks about how white, white body supremacy and racism has very real physical effects on the, the body of not just brown bodies, but white bodies and what it does to people. And I've recently been considering how my heart conditions and my blood pressure and you know all these things that happen to the weathering, if you will, of a, of a brown body is very much linked to um, how I treat myself emotionally and how I judge um, my emotions and things like that. So um, we need to do more to practice being emotionally honest and finding places where we can feel safe to be our true selves. And 
I do have like small pockets of friends, but like practices like this, like talking to your community, honestly. And I mean, this is going to seem, I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed to even share this, but like, this is a good way of like kind of gauging. Um, when Chadwick Boseman died last week, two weeks ago, a lot of people felt like profound sadness and wanted to just cry over an actor who portrayed a fictional character, but it was a, you know, a real person. And this, this person meant something on a lot of different levels for people and showed us strength on a lot of different levels. And like, I wanted to cry. Um, and, and my wife was like, maybe you should just cry. Maybe you should just go be sad. And I'm like, I, I think that's what I did, you know, because I, it warranted that. And I think in some instances in the past, I would not have let myself be sad for those days. But I think now being emotionally honest, sometimes you just need to let yourself emote and cry and um, express anger or sadness or whatever, so. Mm -hmm. And there's a big piece also to be said about doing this healing work or this anti-racism work within, in groups of people that are our same race who yeah. understand uh, what it what it means, um, so that you don't have to like um, step in. You don't have to bring the power barrier into it. So safe spaces for white folks to do their healing work, because in Rasma Manikim's book, if you read it, it's really he does such a wonderful job of pointing out that the trauma of racism and its oppression is not just experienced by BIPOC folks. It's also very much experienced by white people. Yeah. And we all need to continue doing the, the healing work from that trauma. I know I went for a while there. Thank you for letting me have that. Um, Maybe it's time for you to share about the other practice. Yeah, well, I want to do, so we actually, there was a fourth paragraph from the mm. book. So I'm going to read that real quick. I saw that I missed that slide. Thank you for adding that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So the fourth para, and this is where Ruiz kind of starts talking about the antidotes within the book. So. over here. We have the need to be accepted and to be loved by others, but we cannot accept and love ourselves. The more self-love we have, the less we experience self-abuse. Self-abuse comes from self-rejection, and self-rejection comes from having an image of what it means to be perfect and never measuring up to that ideal. So basically, when we are swimming in a water that's expecting us to be perfect, we will, we will always knowingly or unknowingly um, internalize some level of self-rejection and self-abuse because we are living up, trying to live up to a standard that we can never achieve. Our image of perfection is the reason we reject ourselves and it's why we don't accept the way we are and why we don't accept others the way they are. And so ultimately within this paragraph, um, 
Ruiz says further on in the book, but within this paragraph, it points to the two things that um, the antidotes of perfectionism show up by being able to love ourselves and accept ourselves and also to be authentic with who we are. So Garrett just talked about authenticity and how that's an antidote um, to perfectionism. Did you yeah, want to say somewhat, anything more about that? I just wanted to say that I know I jumped ahead in the outline and that's okay. It's totally yep. fine. We don't, we're not striving well, for perfection. We'll call it honoring people's time. Yeah. All right. And then the second antidote uh, is the self-compassion. So if we're always, if we're inter internalizing perfectionism, which leads us, leads to the self-abuse and self-rejection, the antidote to that um, can also be self-compassion. And so that's going to be our practice for today, our meditative practice. And I'm just gonna say a few words about self-compassion first. Uh, oftentimes when people hear, hear the word self-compassion, they're like, oh, so that's being compassionate with yourself, right? And yes, that it is, that is what it means. So you can take it at face value, but it's, it's more than just being compassionate with yourself. And it's actually uh, an intervention and practice in counseling um, because a person named Kristen Neff, who's a professor and clinician, did a bunch of research on self-compassion um, and created practices are, here's the research really quick did research to show how self-compassion leads to help happy life through these different steps. So the first one of self-kindness, we're caring towards ourselves as we are towards others, recognizing our common humanity and our shared human experience. So this is a big one uh, when we're talking about race is um, that racism is dehumanizing to people of all races. And anti-racism is a big part of sharing, recognizing humanity and sharing that our experiences, that we can only live whole lives um, if everyone is experiencing the level of, um, the same level of privilege, as long as there's oppression that oppression is always going to be on someone else, and in turn, it's going to be oppressing me. Uh, the third step, mindfulness, being open to the reality of the present moment. And this is blocking, acknowledging our suffering without exaggerating it. So mindfulness, uh, being present in our body, um, and just gentle awareness of what we're experiencing without judging it as good or bad. Um, with good or bad judging things that speaks back to one of the other characteristics of um, binary thinking 
of that we see on the, the Tima Okun article. And here's a little quote, self-compassion is not letting yourself off the hook, but rather, rather accepting your humanness in spite of things not being perfect. So a lot of people have this pushback towards self-compassion because it's like, well, aren't you just, by loving yourself, aren't you just making, like letting yourself off the hook and not holding yourself accountable or to holding yourself to higher standards? Um, and that's, again, how we've internalized um, what it looks like to be, to push, to be hard on ourselves, to be perfect. Um, and anything gentle or accepting or compassionate on ourselves is, uh, seems wishy-washy. So before I do um, a quick guided meditation, I also wanna mention, let me stop sharing here, mention that a lot of, if you look up self-compassion if you do a Google search, you'll see a lot of stuff by Kristen Neff and other teachers. There's BIPOC teachers and clinicians and uh, groups of people who come together uh, to talk about self-compassion and do that as a practice together. Um, and I wanted to specifically point out um, a website by a clinician named Dr. Adia Gooden and Mandy's gonna throw that link up in the chat. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Gooden has a really wonderful um, write-up about how it's a case for black self-compassion and how self-compassion can be a really important um, practice for black folks um, given the black experience in the US. So if you're interested in that, I wanted to make sure you had that. Can I interject super quick? Um, Please. So, Abhishek, at our last chat, but when we were prepping for this, we talked about parts work. Do you remember that phrase? Oh, yeah. So you talked about the idea of specifically having compassion and kind of extending goodwill towards not like a part of your body per se, but like the past you, like 10-year-old you or 15-year-old you or the you that messed up your credit or whatever it was. Um, and I saw something on social media this morning. I'm not going to call out, but uh, someone that's here tonight, uh, I saw on their Instagram that they were, they like wrote a letter to their like young self. And it was mm -hmm. this like super compassionate, um, just gesture of like, you know, you're doing your best. You didn't know what you were doing completely, but you had good intentions and it was just this beautiful, warm, like it's what you would want anyone to tell you or your child or like anyone that needed encouragement, but she was extending it uh, to herself, uh, a past mm -hmm. self. And, and I just really, um, it made me think about that work that you mentioned, parts work and how um, sometimes we need to think about the, the us that we're judging and go specifically to that part and speak goodwill and acceptance and love to that part of ourselves. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for bringing that up, Garrett. Because uh, if you've like if you've been if you've been in therapy, 
you talk about there's like different therapists talk about the mechanism of change like how does healing come does it come by changing the way you think by changing how you how you process your emotions by changing um the way you respond to your emotions and so there's a, a growing movement in the field of, of mental health where people there's research is showing that change comes when we build compassion for ourselves and so like self-compassion is one intervention the parts work is another intervention where you identify these parts of you that have experienced trauma experienced difficult things and as you have conversations with those parts essentially what you're doing is building self-compassion because sometimes it's so hard to have compassion for yourself that you have to like distance between yourself, like my 33-year-old self, but knowing that there was a 10-year-old who had this terrible experience in church uh, because he was being held upheld to a, a standard that was unreasonable. And so when in my own like therapy, I had this moment of having compassion for that 10-year-old part, like I had to go back and have this conversation with that part of me that experienced something that was really difficult. And so the parts work helps with that. Um, you may like two chair is another technique, like some may be familiar with where you're in therapy and you're talking to someone like either yourself, a part of yourself, a younger self, or even a family member and you're talking to them um, and building compassion for yourself through having this conversation. So yeah, self-compassion, that's uh, really important, important work for like healing ourselves from how perfectionism has caused us to perpetuate abuse on ourselves. Aesthetic distance in drama therapy, yeah. That's cool. So I'm going to just talk us through a quick little practice on self-compassion. So um, I know all, a lot of you are writing already, um, so you can feel free to write this or just Hi. reflect. Okay, just wanted to make sure that wasn't someone who had something they wanted to say. So first, think about times when a close friend feels really bad about a situation they're struggling with. How do you respond to your friend in this situation? Especially when you're, in your, at your best, like you're at a time where you really feel you can be with this friend. How do you respond? Write down what you typically do, what you say, and even note the tone in which you typically talk to your friend. And then think about a time when you feel bad about yourself 
or you are struggling or you made a mistake, you messed something, something up big time, how do you typically respond to yourself? Write down what you typically do, what you say, and note the tone in which you talk to yourself. Do you notice a difference? And if so, ask yourself why. What factors or fears come into play that lead you to treat yourself so differently from your friends? And then take some time to think about or write down how you think things might change if you responded to yourself in the same way that you typically respond to a close friend when you are suffering or when you have made a mistake. Why not try treating yourself like you would treat a good friend and see what happens? I just have to say, while I was reading through this practice, it reminded me, um, Andrea and I were out camping over Labor Day, and the, there was this guy who was like packed, putting up his RV and getting ready to leave the campground, and somehow the RV didn't hitch properly into the truck bed, and so he started moving the truck and it like their RV didn't move and it like pulled back on the gate of his truck and he like and we heard it we heard the the truck just like the metal just kind of groaning from being pulled and drenched apart and he like the door swings open he's like dumbass and you would have thought that he was talking to someone but he was, he was talking to himself. That was his first reaction. And we all do that a lot, all the time. Do you have anything else, Garrett? I'm just reflecting on how useful the aesthetic distance or 
kind of speaking to parts of yourself, that seems very helpful to me. And I, I, I hope that just those very brief mental exercises will help in the future to help me um, not take it easy, not, uh, not uh, let go of my goals, but to just have more compassion on myself when I hit frustrating times or especially this year, especially in 2020, like how can we be so hard on ourselves in a year like this when so many of our plans have been disrupted and just obliterated by things that are truly out of our control and we can't control what our neighbors do and what our politicians always do. Um, but we can control how we treat ourselves. So I'm hoping to take away some practical things that I can put into play right away. Yeah. And since we were talking about parts work, I thought I'd throw that in the chat. I know I, I talked about this last time I spoke at Open Table too, and I keep bringing it up. Uh, but the movie um, Inside Out, the animation movie with the, the little little girl and the parts in her head of anger, joy, disgust, um, sadness, and fear, I think, that was based off of the research on this parts work. And um, one way of accessing it is through Richard Schwartz's Internal Family Systems, which is just a wonderful dialogue uh, helping develop a dialogue with your parts within yourself um, and allowing for everything to belong, even those hurt parts and beginning the conversation for what those hurt parts need from you, uh, need from your true self. 